All right. Hello, everyone. Probably getting tired of seeing my face. I've been a regular appearing guest on this program. All right. Let me do something here real quick. Okay. So what I'd like to do is begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to start uh, the third aspect of the first angel's message. Uh, for the hour of his judgment has come, and we'll do have one more tomorrow on the topic of uh, worship him who made heavens, earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. So let's pray. Sweet Jesus, we thank you so much for blessing us, for a delicious meal, for beautiful sunshine, and for the three angels' messages, and what a blessing they are to humanity. And so I pray as we study, uh, again, the first angel's message today, that you would bless us, that you would give us new insight from your word, and that we would see Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For the hour of his judgment has come. Now, this implies something. We as Adventists kind of have some inside information on this of some degree. We believe of understanding the big picture of the heavenly sanctuary, and we talk about the investigative judgment. Um, I'm going to build on that assumption. I don't have time to give a Bible study on the investigative judgment and this. So if that's not something you're familiar with, I would recommend that you talk to your local Adventist pastor and get a Bible study on that, or talk to me, and we can try to study it later on sometime this week. But uh, for right now, I need to jump into this. So this implies that the hour of His judgment has come, as if it's a current tense circumstance. We believe uh, that the message of the first angel began sounding in the year 1844, that God was preparing a people for the soon second coming of Jesus. And so, anyway, that's kind of that background context. So, um, the I want to share kind of two things, kind of two forms of Jesus' ministry, the ministry as the lamb and the ministry as the priest. Those are kind of the two most important roles in the sanctuary economy. The first was the role of the priest. The second was the role of the sacrifice. We'll see that Jesus fills both of these roles. So the daily service, what took place 359 days out of the year, involves sin being transferred in to the sanctuary, right? So Bob would sin. He would walk his animal to the front of the tabernacle. He would confess over the animal his sin. He would kill the animal himself. And then the priest would catch that blood and carry the blood into the tabernacle and sprinkle it on the altar and also on the veil that was in front of the Ark of the Covenant, that kind of separating veil between the two apartments. That happened 359 days out of the year. That was the daily services. And this is where Jesus' ministry as a lamb is represented. Jesus is, as it says in John chapter 1 and verse 29, I believe, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? But he also, as a priest, administers this sacrifice on our behalf, right? Jesus is also the mediator. So he dies in our stead, but he's also the one that transfers the merits of his death and his blood into the sanctuary service and offers that on our behalf. But the yearly sanctuary service, okay, what happened on the Day of Atonement in particular was a service where sin was transferred out of the sanctuary and all record of sin was completely removed from the camp. Okay, there was no record of it whatsoever. This is the second phase of atonement, and this is where his priestly role was necessary. So we as Seventh-day Adventists believe in what's referred to as a two-phased atonement. Right? We have the death of Jesus and the intercessory ministry of Jesus in heaven as is laid out in the scriptures and so forth. Now, some of our friends in other denominations believe that we as Adventists are a little out of line 
Uh, there is no idea of an investigative judgment in Scripture. It's just something that Ella White said, and it's not biblical. I just want to give some references here for this. This is not an apologetic exercise, by the way, or meant to be polemic in nature, argumentative in nature, but I just want you to know that we have good, solid standing theologically to believe in this teaching. So in Exodus chapter 25, verses 9 and 40, Moses was told that he's going to build the wilderness tabernacle according to the pattern that was shown him. Okay? And that pattern means that there was something, there was, there was a real thing that existed, and this was made in harmony with that, or, or made similarly to that original one. In Leviticus chapter 16, this explains the anti-type, uh, or, or the type, uh, I should say, of the Day of Atonement that we believe is the investigative judgment, um, where it explains how once a year sin was transferred out of the sanctuary. That's where we get that biblical premise from is Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Then we get to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. So Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this kind of theme of repeat and enlarge. We also see this in Revelation some too. This idea that you see in Daniel 2, there are four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, that correlate with the metals. Right? They increase in strength, but they decrease in value. And then in Daniel chapter 7, there's, well, after the, after the, the fourth kingdom, there's kind of a dividing of the kingdom. And then eventually there's a rock cut without hands and destroys and smashes the whole thing. It's the second coming of Jesus. But in Daniel chapter 7, we kind of zoom in a little bit. So there's more details given per kingdom of those four. Plus it talks about the little horn now, the Antichrist power that will rule from the division of the fourth kingdom until the second coming. And, but there's also another detail that's given. It says that the books were opened and the court was seated. Now, what's implied here is that there's a judgment happening in heaven before the second coming of Jesus. Okay, that's laid out in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 8, we see this idea of unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, there was only one day out of the year in which there was a cleansing of the earthly sanctuary, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So when you are a Jew living in that dichotomy or that, that economy of the Jewish history, you would be understanding that when you hear a sanctuary being cleansed, that would be synonymous in your mind with judgment. That a cleansing of a sanctuary and a judgment go hand in hand. They would know that. Any Jew would know that. Okay? Then in Daniel chapter 9, we have the 70 weeks, which is when the 2300 days and the 70 weeks begin. That kind of timeline that explains what the 2300 days was about they're similar in nature. The 70 weeks is like a small picture of what the 2300 days will be about. There's a length of time given, a time of probation given to a group of people before a judgment will be given in a cutting off. Right? It's the same type of idea in Daniel 7 and Daniel uh, 9, or the, the 70 weeks and the 2300 days. Okay? Then we get to Hebrews chapter 8, and we're told that Jesus is the minister of the true tabernacle in heaven, and that the earthly temple is a copy or shadow of this one. So it's laid out super clear in Hebrews. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 9, that Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. Again, borrowing language from Leviticus chapter 16. Then Revelation chapter 10, we have the bitter disappointment that takes place. The people of God were assuming Jesus would come. It was super sweet to them. Can you imagine if you knew Jesus is coming in two weeks? You know how much peace that would give you to know that it may be hard right now, but at least see, most of us, we have this kind of like budget of emotional energy, right? And so we kind of pace. So you get into a difficult conversation you're going to have with somebody. I just need to make it to the end of that conversation without acting a fool or causing problems or getting angry. And then me and Jesus can go on a walk and deal. We measure ourselves. We pace ourselves emotionally. 
That would have been very helpful waiting on the second coming of Jesus. The problem is no man knows the day or the hour, right? So they were excited, but when Jesus didn't come when they thought he would, they were crushed by disappointment, right? And the interesting thing is some people say that, you know, you Seventh-day Adventists said that Jesus was coming in 1844, which isn't an entirely accurate statement because Seventh-day Adventists didn't exist in 1844. The Seventh-day Adventist Church wasn't incorporated until 1863. It was actually Baptists and Methodists that believed that Jesus was coming in 1844. So uh, not the whole denominations, obviously, but people from those denominations were largely believing this. But the point is that disappointment that happened uh, was prophesied in the book of Revelation that this would take place. Uh, and they were told after that disappointment to go and prophesy again. Some translations say about many nations and tongues. It's actually two. And the point was that this movement after 1844 happened was to prophesy again, to keep sharing with people their now better understanding of what would take place and what did take place in the year 1844. Okay, so there are many allusions to this. In fact, there's a few more. In Revelation chapter 11, uh, we've got the dead are judged and the ark is seen. Now, the ark of the covenant is that piece of furniture that's sprinkled and that where the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary happens. And so there's this allusion to this in Revelation 11. In Revelation chapter 14, that we just talked about a moment ago in the first angel's message that um, for the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, that's another allusion to that. Then we get to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8, and the door of probation closes. Access into the heavenly sanctuary ceases because that cleansing work has finished. And then in Revelation chapter 22, it says, let them remain as they are. He who is righteous, let him remain righteous still. He who is, is wicked, let him remain wicked still, right? So this kind of allusion to the idea that there's a time coming when people will be left with the decisions they've made because a judgment has been rendered. Okay, so the point is, it's all over the Bible, this idea of the investigative judgment. God investigates before he renders a judgment. He did that before Sodom and destroying it. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. He did it with Cain before he, right after he had killed his brother. Right? God investigates what's going on before he renders a final judgment. It happened at the Tower of Babel again. Right? It's a consistent theme of how God does life. Okay? Here's the good news. Even on the Day of Atonement... The morning and evening sacrifices for unknown sins still took place. This is super important for us. Dr. Leslie Harding talks about this in his book, and I think actually I actually have a quote for that next, that the morning and evening sacrifices were for the people who did not know what sins they had committed, which implies something. Is God looking for reasons to keep you out of heaven, yes or no? No. He understood that we are but dust. We don't know the depths of our own depravity. There's things we won't know. And he's made provision for that, right? No confession was made in those sacrifices. And Leslie Harding comments on this in his book here. He says, The daily services of the tabernacle went on every day of the year without cessation, even on the weekly Sabbath as well as during the pilgrim feasts. And by God's specific command, the tamid, that that particular sacrifice, was never to be omitted. The sacrifices connected with these festive days were presented in addition. This was also true on the Day of Atonement. The contract, the constant morning and evening services embrace the special ceremonies of the day like two loving arms. Don't you love that? So there was a very solemn and, and, and you know, uh, very special ceremony that was happening and a service that was happening on the Day of Atonement. What couched that on either side, what couched that was the love of God advocating for his people, fighting for his people, and offering sacrifice for what they didn't know they had committed. 
Okay? So the daily was thus the very foundation of the entire sacrificial system, and nothing was permitted to interfere with it. It pointed directly to the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would be as sensible to omit the daily from the worship of Israel as it would to take the cross from that of Christians. The liturgy of the morning was repeated in the evening. And this is such good news for us, because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there are many people in our movement who think, like, oh, I'm never going to be good enough. God, what sins have I committed? Oh, man, like, the Jesus is not going to be our mediator anymore. And they get so freaked out by things that they've read and what they're wrestling with that this very topic of what about the sins I don't know that I've committed drives some people nearly to the point of insanity who genuinely want to love and worship God. But the sanctuary service shows us there's provision there. Amen? God has made provision for us. So this is where our view of the atonement and the sanctuary sets us apart from any other Protestants. Right? The investigative judgment isn't just about the work of Jesus in cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. It's also a time in which the same high priest is sanctifying you to ensure that you can stand without mediation. Okay? And we see this. This is that, that, I don't know about popular, but that well-known quote in Great Controversy 425.1 says that those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless, their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there's to be a special work of purification, the putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14, which we're talking about through the course of this week, right? So this leads to two really big important questions, maybe three, but at least two, I think two. The first is this. What is the role of a mediator? Because we're told that Jesus will be leaving that mediatory role. What does that mean? Because some people think that means that Jesus isn't going to love me anymore. Jesus isn't going to fight for me anymore, and I'm on my own. Is that really what's being said here is the first question. And the second question is, how do we exercise diligent effort, especially as a people who should be championing the message of righteousness by faith? What does that mean? So we're going to spend the rest of our time today on those two things. So first of all, what's the role of a mediator? First and foremost, it needs to be made abundantly clear to us, if you did not know already, God wants all to be saved. You can say amen to that even here, yeah? I guess you can't. Amen. It's okay. The gospel is good news. You should get excited about the fact that God wants everyone to be saved. You're not saying it for me. You're saying it for Jesus because he's awesome. So he wants all to be saved, and he does what it takes for all to be saved, okay? So before we get into any explanations, that should be clear. I may have mentioned this earlier, but the very fact that there are 12 gates for the new Jerusalem implies ease of access. It implies that God is wanting people in the city, right? And so God wants all to be saved, okay? Now, the role of the priest was a mediatory role. So when she says that Jesus will not, we won't have a mediator anymore, what she's saying is that that mediatory role can no longer be filled because a priest would catch the blood in a bowl on behalf of Bob and he would bring that blood into the tabernacle and sprinkle it. He would be doing the mediatory role of transferring Bob's sin from Bob into the sanctuary. 
Now, when the investigative judgment's taking place, there's going to come a point in time where no more can go in. So Jesus' mediatory role of transferring in can't happen any longer. But that does not mean that Jesus isn't standing for his people. That does not mean Jesus is not advocating for his people. And that does not mean that Jesus is not covering his people with his own spotless robe of righteousness. Do you understand the difference? There's a big difference. But unfortunately, many of our people don't know that. Okay? So... In the context of Ellen White's statement, then, it logically follows that if the sanctuary is being cleansed, there will come a time when sin can't go in so that the cleansing can be finished. That's all that's being said. So the transferring role ceases, but Jesus doesn't cease to love you or be your Savior. In fact, at this stage, God's people have already been sealed. God's people have already been sealed, and they would rather die than sin. So we don't need to beat ourselves up and get so freaked out about this context because God's work will be complete in his people. Now, your nature doesn't change at that stage. You still have a nature that could sin. But because of the outpouring of the Spirit of God in your life and the seal of God placed in the forehead, right? The complete, Ellen White refers to the seal of God as a settling into the truth. You are so fully convinced of knowing and believing the love God has for you, what is truth, that you would rather die than sin. That's what's going to happen to God's people, so they're not going to need a mediator anyway at that stage. Do you understand the difference? doesn't mean that people, you know, are going to like no longer have a desire or an inclination towards sin. The point is you're, you will not. It's not that you can't. You choose not to through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in even greater measure. And God's people stand as a witness to those who are enduring the seven last plagues, right, of, of what God can, will do, can and will do for humanity. So, The next question is, how do we exercise our diligent effort? That's basically the rest of this time together. So we're explaining what it means to live in the hour of his judgment and how to succeed and how God views us. That's kind of my my goal for this particular seminar, okay? So we're told this in John chapter 14 and verse 1. Uh, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's actually rooms. But in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Okay. Then he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay. This is the promise Jesus makes to the disciples. And so Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven right now. But you got to kind of grapple with this because one certainly has to wonder. Jesus, when he was on earth, was raised to fill the role of a carpenter, most likely a stonemason is probably what most historians believe, something along those lines. He was doing that type of building work. But the question then remains, has Jesus been literally building houses for the last 2,000 years? If so, he's quite possibly the worst carpenter the universe has ever known. And that can't be the case. Now, does that mean that there wasn't some form of physical preparation? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is he's preparing a place for us still even right now, not with a hammer and nails, but by preparing your heart. Jesus is preparing a kingdom for us by preparing a kingdom in us. Are you with me? So part of the work that Jesus is doing during the investigative judgment is not wondering whether you're good enough or not. It's making you good enough. It's pouring His grace upon you, filling you with the Holy Spirit, and empowering you to live a different life. 
So he's not just looking at books, wondering who messed up and who didn't. He's preparing people to stand in the day of God without a mediator. That's what Jesus is doing right now. And that's what the three angels' messages should be doing, preaching the beauty of the gospel to people and calling them to search their own hearts and for them to give God permission to change their hearts. Are you with me? This is what God is doing right now, what Jesus is doing on our behalf. Okay? So how does that work? Well, in John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, if you're one of the 12 disciples, is that good news or bad news to you with your preconceived ideas that you don't want to let go of at this stage? It's bad news. What do you mean it's a good thing that you're leaving? Like, you're our only hope, bro. Like, you're going to get rid of the Romans. I'm going to sit on your right. My brother's going to sit on your left. We're better than Peter. Peter says, no, I'm better than all the other guys. They'll leave you, but I certainly won't. What on earth do you mean, Jesus? But if I don't go away, he says, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We're told this in Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce. That book is full of the gospel, by the way. It's great. But she says, through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, souls are led to find forgiveness of sins. Understanding and appreciating and receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential for God's last generation. It is of the most paramount importance that we understand, appreciate, and receive this. So Jesus in his high priestly role is cleansing the sanctuary above of any record of our confessed sins. And he's using the Spirit to cleanse the temple of our hearts here below so that we can be ready to live without someone filling that mediatory role. That's the point, okay? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And what we're basically doing is taking a daily trip through the sanctuary, right? You confess your sin to the gate. You're trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus at the laver. You're reconsecrating and washing your heart at the laver. And you're pushing into the sanctuary, communing with God at His Word, at the table of showbread. You're communing with God in prayer through the altar of incense. And you're sharing the light that God has given you through the outpouring of the Spirit in the candlesticks. But your end goal is to press through that veil and to be like Jesus. That's the end goal of a Christian. But if you find yourself stumbling along the way in that journey, you go right back out and you take another daily trip to the sanctuary. You confess that sin and you work through it. So what God is doing at that stage is preparing his people to press into the sanctuary and be made like Jesus, right? To see him face to face without fear, without intimidation, without apprehension, to fully know and believe that God loves you and resting in that love and his transforming work in your life. That's what we're doing. That's what we find ourselves doing. So the end goal is to press beyond that veil. But the interesting thing is that we're told that the closer we grow to God, the more sinful we will feel. You would think that as time goes on and you get rid of this and get rid of that, like, man, I think I've, I've almost got it figured out. But the closer I grow to Jesus, the more I see the true nature of my own heart. And the more I see my need of God the more I recognize I desperately need a source of righteousness that is outside of myself, because if it's up to me, there's no hope. This is what the gospel's meant to do, to peel back those layers of superficial Christianity, of arrogance, right, of all that other foolishness. So how do we get there? And how does that change happen? Uh, I'm going to read something I wrote down when you were in your prayer closet last night, maybe. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good wells. For to, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? We as Seventh-day Adventists are generally pretty good at knowing what God expects. It's how to get there that we struggle with. And how does God view me as I'm striving to get there? That's what we really wrestle with. And I've come to find in ministering to young people and adults alike that when we spend a lot of time elevating the standards, now am I saying we shouldn't elevate the standards? No, never said it, nor would I say it. Another side tangent, legalism is not the raising of the standard. You know that, right? Legalism is not a raising of the standard. It's a lowering of the standard so that man can reach it, as my friend Jeffrey says. Right? Like that's what I have seen with legalism, and I, I agree with that premise. So, but the problem is when we lift up the standard of what God expects, but we don't communicate how to get there or how God enables us or, or how God views us as we're seeking to get there, there's a problem with that. Because we come face to face with our own failure and we think to ourselves, basically two options really, whenever we come face to face with the fact that we preach a high message, but we don't tell people how to succeed or how God views us as we're striving to succeed. I'm a loser, I'll never be good enough, and I might as well quit. Or two, God is unreasonable. Because why would God ask me to do things that he knows good and well that I can't do? That's not only not fair, that's unreasonable, and I don't want to serve a God who works like that. Well, the good news is God doesn't work like that. But many of our people don't know that because we're not. So we're so busy talking about the commandments of God. We don't tell people about the faith of Jesus. We don't actually preach the full three angels messages to people. We'll have another message on the on the topic of righteousness by faith. I think Sabbath morning where we we have not clearly communicated to, to our people how God wants to set us up to succeed in the Christian experience. And so in turn, we're miserable. We can't get anything right. We don't know why. Why do I keep doing this if this is just an act of futility? And so we need to be careful in how we preach this message that we don't set our people up for failure. Now, the answer to Paul's questions in Romans 7 is found in Romans chapter 8. Um, And so we're going to look at that here, a decent amount of Romans chapter 8, along with some other texts. Okay. So there are two functions that the Holy Spirit serves to answer these questions of how we get there. The first is the confirming work of the Holy Spirit, to attribute the work of the Lamb. And the second is the conforming work, uh, attributing the work of the priest. So these two things I think are super important, the act of confirmation and the act of conforming, okay? Confirming and conforming. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, if you'd like to turn there, we're going to have a Bible study today. Are you okay with that? I was going to do it anyway, but I'm glad you are. Ephesians chapter 1, that's why they pay you the big bucks. All right, Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, that's what it says. In him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, this is not talking about the last day sealing of God's people. There's actually two sealings that take place. There is the initial sealing when you believe in Jesus, and then there is the latter rain sealing that happens at the end of time. Okay, there are two separate ones that are being refer- referred to here. Okay? So here's the basic things that Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. After you heard the gospel, you believed, and then you trusted in Jesus, and when you trusted in Jesus, it says that you were sealed. And he also says that this serving serves the purpose of a guarantee. Other translations make it allude to this idea of, of 
uh, a down payment or deposit, right? If you buy a large ticket item, you sit down with them, you put money on the table to make it clear that you're good for it, right? You're testifying and you're signing paperwork that says, at the end of this loan, I'm going to seal the deal and finish things. By God's grace, I just paid off my car 13 months early, right? I, I was a little early on my guarantee to them, by God's grace. But that, that's what you're doing. You're showing them that you're good for it. And then you're setting a, a jointly agreed upon date to seal the deal. Well, what Paul's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is serving that sealing function. That when you believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God is testifying that Jesus is good for it. Jesus is going to see this person through. Now, we're not teaching once saved, always saved, right? Your power of choice remains throughout this process. But from the moment you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit is testifying in heaven that heaven is now your home until Jesus comes to seal the deal at the second coming with the caveat that you keep walking with Jesus. Okay? That's the case. He's going to see you through. That's the promise. Isn't that good news? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's totally good news. But the huge disclaimer here again is that this is not teaching once saved, always saved. It's all dependent upon you walking in the decision to accept Jesus and to follow the promptings of His Spirit. If you stumble along the way, come back and keep it moving. But if you walk, He's going to give you what you want. Okay? The process starts all over again. So, this ceiling in Ephesians 1 is what is referred to as imputed righteousness, to use one of those $10 theological terms, and justification. Okay? And we'll define that term here because it's unreasonable to say fancy things and not define them. So, to impute means to attribute something, like righteousness in this case, to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. So, Jesus' righteousness is attributed to my account when I believe in Jesus. Now, am I a righteous person? No, but Jesus' righteous life covers my life, and I am declared righteous when I believe in Jesus. That's what justification means, being declared righteous, right? And we have a... oh. They're doing it. There's a window open over here. Maybe they know how to change that. Um, I would change the slide for you, but I'll just read it on mine here. That justification is the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. So you believe in Jesus, and you are declared righteous in God's presence. That's what's being told there. So yeah, the laptop on the front's got a little window open, it looks like, and the slides aren't changing now for them. But I can keep moving on my end, but some of this may be helpful for them. Whenever you get a chance to help us, thank you. All right, so this is what we're told in the Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. This is a really, really helpful definition that, that really benefited me and blessed me. It says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. Imparted righteousness is this idea of the tangible delivery of Jesus' righteous life to you. For instance, you are declared righteous when you believe in Jesus. Okay, that, that happens immediately. That's justification. But now the Holy Spirit is doing a work of empowering you to receive and to live Jesus' already achieved righteous life. This is why as you're walking with Jesus, there's things that you don't do anymore that you used to do, right? You talk differently. You were convicted about things you weren't convicted about before, before right? That's Jesus imparting, the Holy Spirit delivering to you the righteous life of Jesus. That's, what's, that's what it means. So one is a declaration. The second is, to, is provision to make the declaration a living reality. Does that make sense? One is provision, and the other is a declaration. Or Sorry, the, one's a declaration, and the other is provision to make that declaration a reality. So this is really awesome news when you think it through. That means that you are declared righteous 
while he's making you righteous. Are you following me? That he is declaring you as a righteous person, even though you're not righteous. He's working through a process of changing you, which means then I don't need to be so freaked out over whether I'm going to be good enough then. Are you understanding? Because Jesus is testifying of your good enoughness. Why? Because only Jesus is good enough. And his righteousness covers you as his spirit transforms you to live up to what he's been saying all along. That's part of what the faith of Jesus does. He treats you based upon what you could be, not based upon what you currently are. Now, in his eyes, that's already a done reality. But for us, he's declaring something and then bringing it to pass. Are you with me? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And uh, this is from A.T. Jones in The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection. That book's awesome. He says, and thus it is for the sins which we have actually committed, for the sins that are past. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to us as our sins were imputed to him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He continues, and to keep us from sinning, his righteousness is imparted to us in our flesh as our flesh with its liability to sin was imparted to him. Thus, he's the complete savior. He saves us from all the sins that we've actually committed and he saves us equally from all the sins that we might commit dwelling apart from him. Isn't that awesome? That's a complete savior, guys. All right, so that's, that's the confirming ministry of Jesus, uh, of, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I should say. Go to Romans chapter eight. We see another one. Romans chapter eight. And verse 14, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, it says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So if you're being led by the Spirit of God, you're viewed as a child of God. Amen. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I love this illustration because what's communicated here is that, you know, generally the way that people feel who are in a situation of being an orphan or someone who is adopted was what was implied is that I wasn't wanted, but now I am wanted. Someone saw something of value in me, even though others didn't. I am loved, I'm accepted, I am welcomed into a home. This is a new home for me. So we are adopted by the, the Spirit of God. We receive the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that's Daddy. Continuing in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are current tense children of God. The Spirit is testifying this right now is a child of God. Okay, so when you become a believer, the Spirit confirms that you are a child of God. Now, when you're adopted into a new family, how much do you know about the expectations of that home? Let alone how to get there. Nothing. You don't know what's expected. You just know that you are accepted. All you know is that I am loved and I belong here. I don't know what you want from me. I don't know how to do what you want from me, but I'm thankful for the fact that you want me. And this is what happens in our experience in believing in Jesus. Do you know all the truth whenever you believe in Jesus? No, right? We're going to be learning truth throughout the eternity, right? It's going to be a process for us. 
but we're accepted into a new family and we're not brought into bondage to fear. I hope I'm good enough. I hope you'll like me. We're delivered from that. And what's given is this beautiful word picture of fully loved. So maybe you had an experience where you didn't have a home before. You got one now and it's with Jesus and he loves you. He's proud of you and he's glad to receive you. The spirit testifies that this is a child of God. Okay, we did that already. And we did that already. Look at that. It's like I've done this before. Sorry for that. All right. This is what, what makes the next ministry of the Holy Spirit so amazing. So at this stage, what we know is I'm wanted, I'm loved, I'm accepted. But where do I go from here? Like, what do you want from me and how do I get there? This is the next ministry of the Holy Spirit that's laid out in Scripture. The ministry of the conforming work of the Spirit. Go to Romans chapter 8. Uh, verse 3. Just go a few verses earlier. I love this verse with all of my belly. All right. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, save us, right? And our flesh can't keep the law. So what the law could not do, save us, because it was weak in the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law. I just lost my spot. There we go. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in flesh like ours. And on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. And here's why, according to verse 4, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God has just promised that what you couldn't do, save yourself. God did, because you have weak flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of flesh, just like yours. And he overcame that sin in your flesh so that you now can walk in obedience to the law of God. That's what the Bible says. Okay, so we're not getting rid of the law at all. Okay, so the law can't save us because our flesh is incapable of keeping it. So God sends Jesus in flesh like ours to overcome sin in the flesh. And he did this so the law could be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. And again, I'll be giving my slides to to Hartland here, and you can just request them from whoever you request such things, and I'll make sure they get them so you can study this more but later. Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 15, says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, then it quotes Jeremiah 31. We'll talk about this Sabbath morning. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And now where there's remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. So God promises to write his law in our hearts and in our minds, and he also promises to remember our sins no more. Now, this is actually the second time that Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but if you don't, that's fine. But this is the second time that the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 in the book of Hebrews. Okay, this passage in the New Covenant is the New Covenant that many Christians are talking about today. And we'll address the issue of the covenants Sabbath morning. Okay, this idea of those who keep the commandments of God and the third angel's message. So the Holy Spirit seals us when we believe the gospel, thereby confirming that we are children of God and that heaven is our home. That's how he attributes Christ's work as the lamb to you, the sacrifice for us. But he doesn't stop there. Then he begins to teach you how to live like a child of God by writing his law in your hearts and in your minds. This is how he attributes the work of the priest to us. So in one aspect, he's providing a sacrifice and blessing us and accepting us. And in the next, he's transforming us and making us acceptable, if you will, right? It's a beautiful gift. 
Then we get to Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning of verse 24. Okay? And if you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me preach on these verses because they are one of my favest of faves. Ezekiel chapter 36, just such a beautiful promise of God for his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. It says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and I'll bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you should be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's a promise, beloved, that he will do the work of transformation in, through, and for you. We'll deal with this later. But Ezekiel 36, there are 10 I will statements from God regarding the transformation of his people. We don't get any credit for this. This is all the work of God in broken, faulty humanity. Okay? So, you're dirty, I'll cleanse you, he says. You got idols, I can get rid of them. You have a stony heart, I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent, I'll help you be able to feel again and have some form of sympathy for your fellow man and the things of God. You can't obey, I'll empower you to obey. Okay? So these are the promises that God makes to New Covenant Christians through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into their lives. And it's good news, isn't it? It means the weight's not all on you. Yes. Now, notice, did we change the expectations of God in what we've talked about today? No, they remain the same. The point is you're not the power source. Never have been and never will be if you plan to succeed. You can try it, but you're going to crash and burn and not get the end result. Jesus Christ is our only source of living a righteous life. So by accepting the gospel... This grants the Holy Spirit access to begin this work of sealing us, the work of the Lamb, and transforming us into Christ's image, the work of the priest. So he immediately imputes Jesus' righteous life to us, justifying us before the Father. Then he begins the process of imparting, delivering in a tangible fashion, Jesus' righteous life to us by empowering us to receive and to live his life. Okay? So you were declared righteous while he's making you righteous. That's the promise that we're given. Okay, and that second part is sanctification. Every step of the way, we stand justified before the Father if we continue walking with Jesus. That's the point. Our confessed sin is covered and inside of the sanctuary, and he's purging us of any remaining sin to be able to stand without mediation. Again, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? Okay, it's about to get gooder. This is amazing. Listen to this. Christ Object Lesson 65.2. How many farmers we got in this room right now? Amir's got suspenders on and he's farmed before. Raise your hands, feller. I know you don't do it anymore per se on the farm. All right, there, there are some powerful lessons that Jesus gave in the talk about farming, right? And the germination of the seed. Listen to this. This is so good. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life. And the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. But listen to this. As its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so was the development of the Christian life. Now, this is so important for us because... It says that it's silent and imperceptible. Maybe you found yourself in seasons of revival. I need to read my Bible. I need to study more and pray more so I can get right with Jesus. And you start reading. 
Then a voice comes into your head about a week or two later and says, this isn't working for you. You're not any different. You're just as lame as you were before this started. You're still impatient. You still cheat. You still lie. Your eyes still wander. You're still messing up. This does not work for you, and you might as well quit. And for some of us, that's a pretty attractive thought, isn't it? You're right. I'm not any different. I, I, I should be different by now. And so we get caught up in what we think we should be. But we were just told that that growth is silent and imperceptible which implies you don't see all of what God is doing in your life. So here's the point, beloved. How fast you grow is none of your business, and stop worrying about it. That's not your problem. A mirror may grow at a, at a pace that's faster than Carl grows. Who cares? All of us are seeking heaven. What Jesus is doing in Amir's life or in Carl's life or in anybody else's life is not your problem. My only objective is to stay in that soil. How fast the seed next to me grows, how slow the seed next to me grows is not my problem. How fast I grow is not my problem. My only job is to keep trusting Jesus, to stay in that soil, to keep putting myself in a situation where I could grow. I'm not going to grow in a dark closet. I need to be in the sunshine, with the rain, cultivating the soil, feeding it the rich nutrients that it needs. That's the only thing you need to be focusing on. Amen. Even what the end goal is, standard-wise, is not really to be your objective right now. If you keep looking to Jesus and you keep responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you will grow, you will be declared righteous in that day, and you can stand with boldness in the judgment, as John said in 1 John chapter 4. That's how this works but if you get so caught up in staring in the mirror like Narcissus, staring at yourself until you die because you're so enraptured by what you aren't, it doesn't work. Right? It doesn't work. So, anyway, I'm kind of passionate about that, as you can tell. So the plant must either grow or die, and so as its growth is silent and imperceptible but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. And listen to this next stick of dynamite. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect. At every stage of development, you are viewed as perfect. If I had a whiteboard, I would draw for you right now. If I had a little shoot poking out of the ground, here's the thing. You and I, when we think of perfection, our immediate view is a big honking fruit tree with a bunch of fruit on it. If we're honest with ourselves. We think that that's what perfection looks like, but that's not what God says perfection looks like. When you, and so if I were to plant a tomato plant today, outside of Carl's place, because I stayed there last night, and I come out the next morning, and if I were to see the next morning that there was not a big, vivacious tomato plant with a bunch of delicious tomatoes on it, would it be reasonable for me to be upset about that? Why not? It doesn't work that way, right? It takes time. But here's the problem. You do the same thing to yourself with character growth. You stare at yourself and think you should look like the Apostle Paul when you just accepted Jesus two years ago. It doesn't work that way, guys. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. So whenever God sees a little shoot that's three weeks old coming out of the ground, he says that's perfection. And when he sees a stock that's six weeks into growing, 
He looks at that and says, that's exactly what you should be right now. That's perfection. And then eventually at the harvest, when it's ready to reap and it's a beautiful crop producing fruit, he says, that's perfection. Are you understanding? But that's not the way that we think it looks. And so we beat ourselves up and here's what really happens. Then because we think we're losers and we're not good enough, we pull ourselves out of the soil and then we wither and die and we blame God because he had standards that were unreasonable and aren't reachable. Who's really to blame here? The devil himself and my unbelief. I don't believe God will do what he says he will do and I don't think I'm good enough. Well, that's the point of the gospel. You aren't good enough, but Jesus is good enough. That's the point of the gospel, and that he will do in, through, and for you what you are wholly incapable of doing for yourself. So he views you as righteous at every stage of development. He views you as perfect at every stage of development, which means you don't need to be afraid of that P word. Don't be afraid of the word perfection. That's not your problem. If I'm following Jesus and and, and following the conviction of the Holy Spirit at each step of the way, and if I confess and come right back as I'm going through that process, he gets it. You think Jesus didn't factor that in? Someone had this this meme they made a while back that said, I'm so thankful for the fact that when Jesus had a calling on my life, he factored in my stupidity. And then it said, like, most encouraging thing I've heard all year. He understands we are but dust. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frame. But he doesn't give up on us. And he keeps working in, through, and for us, even when we're a mess. That's the truth and the beauty of the gospel, okay? So at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there's going to be what? Continual advancement. You're going to keep growing. You're not going to stay the way he found you. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And as our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge. And our knowledge increase. We shall become strong to bear responsibilities, and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. So some crops grow quicker just because they have more privileges available to them. There's a better water source, there's more sunshine, but all plants are growing if they're staying in the soil. Are you with me? And so just stay in the soil. That's the conviction, or that's the the charge we're given. Now, Romans chapter 5 fleshes out the completeness of the life and death of Jesus. Go to Romans 5, 8 to 10. I need to... Check something here. Romans 5, verses 8 to 10. All right, I need to move along. It says this. But, oh, this is another important point. So many of us, I was just talking to some people at lunch about this. Many of us have these really horrible views of God the Father. We can roll with Jesus because we see what he did for us. But the Father, we just think like, I'm just a continual disappointment to him. We project our unbelief in ourselves upon God, and we think that God looks at us in the way that we look at us, that we're losers, that we're a waste of his time and we'll never be good enough. And so we think that Jesus came to kind of convince the Father to love us because we really are pretty bad. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God showed his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love us. The Father sent Jesus because he already loved us, and that's before we got anything right. That's what the Bible just said. While you were a mess before you got anything right, God still loved you and sent Jesus to lift us out of this mire. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. Now pay attention to verse 10 because there's a quiz. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What are we reconciled by according to this text? 
by the death of Jesus. His death cancels out our debt, right? I, don't, I didn't really pay attention in school. I was pretty broken from my childhood. But I know there was this thing about canceling out fractions, right? Jesus' death cancels out the death that you and I deserve. But here's the problem. If we stop there, that means I now need to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed, or I go right back into debt. No problem, right? So I need access to more than just someone to clear my debt. I also need someone to live a life that I have not lived. What are we saved by, according to verse 10? His life. So we're reconciled by the death of Jesus. Our debt is cleared, and we're saved by His life which implies some things that are very important to us that should make us very, very happy to believe in the two-phase atonement. Jesus' death cancels out our debt, that's the work of the Lamb, and His life gives us our fitness for heaven, okay? So here's the point. If all I had was the death of Jesus, I would have no hope of eternal life. Did you know that? Because we're reconciled by that, and that's a blessing, but that's not the whole story. My past debt would be cleared with no hope of living a victorious life going forward. This is why we believe in a two-phased atonement, and I think it's super biblical. Romans 5 lays that out. So this is a... Sorry, a previous version of me read my mind. (laughs) So anyway, so God does desire us to have lives that are free from sin. He does intend for us to overcome. We can say amen to that. But if He didn't, why did He send Jesus to suffer, overcome, die, and rise again? It doesn't make any sense. So yes, he wants that, and he's provided the means necessary for us to overcome by sending Jesus to live the perfect life that we have not lived, and by empowering us to live that life through the outpouring of the Spirit. That's the point. Full and ample provision made by Jesus. So how does that happen? A couple references for this. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Why? Lest he fall. They had a saying, when I grew up, don't get too big for your britches. Right? If you think you've got it all together, you're in trouble. If you forget your need and dependence upon Jesus, it's not going to go well. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. This is really important for many of us who struggle with addiction and, and sin in our lives, that we get so beat up over the fact that what a loser we are. But what Paul's saying here is, hey, People around the world struggle with this. You're not the only one, first of all. And God is faithful, who's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The word literally means to endure it. This is so awesome, because what's being communicated here reminds me of John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus. So this woman's water pot was her means of escape from the problems of her life, right? She's at that well at high noon. It's blazing hot outside. No one in the right mind is going to be at that well at that time of day, and that's why she's there, right? She doesn't want to be bothered. She's escaping the problems of her life, and that's why it says in John 4, 4 that Jesus needs to go through Samaria. He knows she's struggling. He knows she's hurting, and that's why he's there to set her free, even though she's a Samaritan with a lot of issues, So I'm very thankful for the fact that Jesus needs to go through Samaria because I've had issues in my life. I've had problems. And he tells her, what I have to offer you is vastly better than what you're coming here for. And she realizes that he has what she needs. And the text later says that she leaves her water pot with Jesus. And she goes and wins a city in the name of Jesus. This This is 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, in a very practical illustration and example. 
that when we're seeking to run to sin, to numb our pain and to check out of life and dissociate, Jesus shows up and offers us something better through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do this. I have something better for you. You're just going to thirst again if you do this, and you know that. So why don't you take what I have to offer? And I love this so much because that means that every time I'm convicted, that's not Jesus saying I'm a loser. That's Jesus offering me something better. That's Jesus seeing something of value in me and him offering me something better. I love that. Philippians 2, verse 13, has another quick point here. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the one that changes your desires, and he's the one that empowers you to walk in those new desires. So when we're tempted, we're to ask for Jesus' spirit of surrender to the will of God, who then enables our will to carry out God's will. Back to Christ's object lessons. The plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. It sends down its roots into the earth. It drinks in the sunshine, the dew, and the rain. It receives the life-giving properties from the air. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies. Feeling our helplessness, we are to improve all the opportunities granted us to gain a fuller experience. As the plant takes root in the soil, so we are to take deep root where? In Christ, and as the plant receives the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, we are to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. The work is to be done not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. If we keep our minds stayed upon Jesus, He will come unto us as the rain, as the ladder and the former rain under the earth. As the Son of Righteousness, He will arise upon us with healing in His wings. We shall grow as the lily, we shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. By constantly relying upon Christ as our personal Savior, we shall grow up into Him in all things who is our head. Oh, I love this so much. So the Spirit allows us to receive everything that Christ achieved and overcame on our behalf, and we can cry out in any moment of need to receive from God what Jesus already accomplished. And Jesus constantly yielded His will to His Father. He continually abided in God, and we can receive His Spirit of surrender. He's not even asking you to muster your own surrender. You can receive Jesus' Spirit of surrender. All right, these are rapid-fire references here. That Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says that the very Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So the very Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can raise you from spiritual death, we're told. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 is another gorgeous promise. And I may have to skip some of these. They'll be in the slides you can get later. Romans 8, 32. Oh, I love this so, so much. Listen to this, guys. Just, just marinate on this gospel goodness. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Think, 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 think. Think with me, guys. If God is not going to withhold Jesus from humanity, you really think he's going to sell you short on what's going to change your life and empower you to overcome? Come now, right? It doesn't make any sense. If he's going to give all of heaven in one gift, why wouldn't he give you what you need to succeed in your Christian experience? Romans 8.26 says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. How many people in this room have a weakness in their life? Yeah, He'll help you with that. Maybe you don't even know how to pray as you ought. He'll teach you how to pray. Every deficiency in our experience has been accounted for in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The question then is, what are you going to do with the pleadings of Jesus through His Spirit? Will you respond? Right? That's, that's the big question. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
Well, how is he knocking on the door of our hearts? It's through his spirit. That's how he's speaking to his people and calling his people back home. So we are gods at every step of our growth according to the imputed and imparted righteousness of Christ. And we can have assurance that we are in God and heaven bound when we remain in Christ. And it says this twice in the, in the, the short epistle in 1 John, that this is how we know that we know him, by his spirit whom he has given us. That's how we know that we know Jesus, the work that the spirit is doing in our lives. Back to Christ's object lessons. This robe, what do you think she's talking about? Which robe is that? The robe of Christ's righteousness, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ and his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this same perfect character he offers to impart to us, to tangibly deliver to you and me. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. How much of our works? Everything we do is defiled by sin, we're told. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. And sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of Himself, I delight to do Thy will, O my God, yea, Thy laws within my heart. When on earth He said to His disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments. By Jesus' perfect obedience, He has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. And no law-believing Adventists say amen. When we submit ourselves to Jesus, the heart is united with His heart, the the, the will is merged in His will, and the mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him, and then what happens? We live His life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of righteousness of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. And that goodness of God is what's going to lead us to repentance. If he will be that good to me, I'll forsake anything that keeps me back from him. All right, I'll skip that for time's sake. Listen to this. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works and keeping the law is attempting what? an impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience. That's true. But his works should not be of himself. That's why God's not impressed with your obedience. You know that, right? God's not impressed with your obedience. And you know why? Because he's the one that did it. He's thankful that you're letting him work in your life, but he's not impressed by that. So don't think, ooh, I did a good deed. I hope Jesus was looking, right? Like, He's always looking. And he's so thankful that you let him into your heart to do that good deed that he did through you. Okay? So, Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. If a man could save himself by his own works, he might have something in himself of which to rejoice. But we don't, so we won't. The effort that man makes in his own strength to obtain salvation is represented by the offering of Cain. Did you hear that? The offering of Cain is Christless. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. But that which is wrought through faith is acceptable to God. So when we seek to gain heaven through the merits of Jesus, what ends up happening? The soul makes progress. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we may go on from strength, from victory to victory. For through Christ, the grace of God has worked out what type of salvation? 
our complete salvation. This is why we can be so joyful about Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. For there is now how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none who do not walk according to the flesh, but how do they walk? According to the Spirit. So walking according to the Spirit is confessing our sin and walking in continual obedience to the prompting of the Spirit. So of course this would deliver us from any form of condemnation. And since we're receiving Christ's Spirit of surrender... We're doing it in Christ. That's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 8. Now, here's some of the ramifications of our misapplication of the expectations of God. So, many of us kind of get caught up in this really hard situation where we, we're so caught up on what we need to be that we think, because so, we know like at the end of time, what I need to look like is that big honking fruit tree with a bunch of fruit on it. I need to be spotless. I need to be righteous. And if I'm not that, then I'm going to be lost then. But then comes the really tricky question. But wait a minute. I'm not that right now. So am I even saved now? Do you see how this connection comes? And it's largely because we focus so much on the end of the race that we've not helped our people understand one, God is going to work within you to will and to do of his good pleasure and set you up to succeed. And two, God is viewing you as righteous while he's making you righteous. He understands you're going to stumble in your heavenward journey. But if all you do is stare at what you ought to be, you never get to appreciate what God is doing in your life right now. In fact, sometimes we get mad at God because we see in ourselves brokenness, frailty. We see humanity. Who knew? Right? And when we see that, we don't know what to do with it. And we get discouraged, and then we get angry at God. I told God to get this sin out of my life. It's still in my life. God's not faithful. And God's thinking to himself, like, if you give me all of you, and if you focus on us, and if you stay in that soil, you will overcome. When that day comes is none of your business. I understand the sins in your life. It's not like I'm going to be caught off guard on Judgment Day and realize, oh man, Bob had sin in their life. I would have done something, but I didn't. Of course he knows. You focus on Jesus. And sometimes one of the reasons why things stay in our lives is because that's not really the issue. For instance, you have an addiction in your life and you keep pleading with Jesus. Take away my chewing tobacco. Take away my pornography. Take away my booze. Take away my whatever. We're asking the wrong thing because the thing isn't the real issue. Now, I'm not justifying or palliating sin, but you're, you're, you're upset about fruit, but you're not dealing with the root. Are you understanding the difference? And so sometimes that fruit is allowed to remain because you're not asking the right question. You're not seeking the right strategy to overcome. The real strategy is, why do I run to this vice in the first place? What's, what vacancies are in my life? John Kent, one of the guys who teaches for our school, had one of the most amazing lines I've ever heard in my life. He shared it at the cafeteria, and I said, you better preach that in our next class period, and he did. He says, when God looks at us, he doesn't see what's wrong. He sees what's missing. And then he pours himself into these broken vacancies in our lives. And I was so thankful for that. And it's accurate with Scripture and and the spirit of prophecy and what he's saying. But I so much appreciate this, that we look at us and we see what's wrong. But God doesn't. God knows the reason why you're acting out is because something's broken inside. Something's wrong in there. 
and he wants to pour himself into these broken spaces of our lives so that we can then live healthy and whole lives. Because when someone has healing of their brokenness, they don't need to numb their pain anymore because the pain's gone. Do you understand the difference? This is why behavior modification never works. Ellen White actually equated it to cutting the foliage off of a tree. She says, starting from without and moving within never works. It will always fail. It's heart work with Christ. We need to start with the heart, and then the fruit itself will change. You understand the difference? The gospel is such good news for us, beloved. All right, Romans 8, 31, 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and I hope you're seeing today that God is totally for you, He's not saying, get your act together, and then I'll think about accepting you. He is for you. Always has been, always will be. So if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So your decisions may separate you from the presence of God, but never from the love of God. And I hope you caught that. God's love for you is not dependent upon what you do. It's based upon who He is. And love believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things for His beloved. So you have a lamb and a priest at your service, but He's left the choice with you. So we'll close with this idea. What if the very God that you're afraid of disappointing the most believes the best things about us? And He's doing whatever it takes to see us saved and is just asking us to respond. Well, the good news is that's the gospel, and that's available to you right now. So then the investigative judgment is good news, and we have a reason to exist as a church prophetically, and we have a job that we can be doing right now by telling this to the world. Yes, your sin matters, but you have a Savior. You can be free from sin. Jesus can enable you to overcome, and the judgment is happening right now where all of this matters. That's the point, and that's the gospel. God sees things in you guys that you don't even see in yourselves. That's the faith of Jesus. And he wouldn't have you living at this stage of earth's history unless he knew that he could sustain you. And I hope you heard that today. Some of us are so spooked. Am I ever going to be good enough? Am I ever going to make it? Newsflash. The very God who created you to live in this window of earth's history believes in your ability to succeed. The very fact that you have breath in your lungs right now is evidence that God is not holding your sins against you. And the fact that you're living at this stage in earth's history is evidence of the fact that he believes that you can stand. But do you believe that? And are you taking him at his word? Will you take care of his belief in you? And in response to the faith of Jesus, will you exercise your faith in Jesus? That's the point, guys. And if we get that right... We're, we're, we're going to be in a, in a good, good situation. Has this made sense today? Yes or no?
I know we did a lot of verses, but have you seen the big picture here that God is working for us? This is what it means to live in the midst of the investigative judgment. This is how God is preparing people to stand in the day of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is what will lead people to fear God and give glory to Him in the midst of the time when his, the hour of His judgment has come. And this is why John in 1 John chapter 4 had the audacity to say that we can stand in boldness in the midst of the judgment. Because we're not boasting in us. We're open vessels for the Spirit of God to use to communicate to the world that God does keep His promises, that the gospel does work, and that He can do the same for them while there's still a chance to do so. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank You for loving us so much. Thank You that the gospel is good news, that You do have a plan for our transformation, for our healing and our forgiveness. God, I pray that You would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that we would believe what you have to say about us, that we would know and believe the love that you have for us and that we would be excited about being Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians living in the last days of earth's history. As we're closing out the first angel's message in our next presentation tomorrow, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to see clearly that there's so much more here than we have seen. But above all else, we want to see Jesus. We love you and we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.